0: What would it be?
1: In an accelerating world, how do we stay nimble, agile, how do we stay interested, and how do we think of things as an experiment?
0: My guest today is one of the most decent humans you could ever meet. Luca Parry is an educator, strategist, and entrepreneur, and works at the global forefront helping schools, systems, and organizations adapt for the future. As a school teacher, he was promoted to principal at 27 years old and was named Inspirational Public Secondary Teacher of the Year for South Australia. He has spent the last six years working across systems globally to support positive change and impact. A rapid learner, he holds two master's degrees, speaks five languages and has undertaken studies at Harvard and a fellowship at Stanford's D School. As CEO and founder of The Learning Future, he works globally supporting schools and organisations to create thriving learning environments with a focus on innovation, future skills and organisational culture. Luca's compassion and genuine interest in others is evident when you meet him. He has a beautiful warmth and I could happily chat to him all day about weird and wonderful topics. He's an incredible communicator, which is testament to him learning several languages later in life. Luca Parry, it is awesome to have you here today. I can't wait to hear where our conversation takes us. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited for our conversation.
0: So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be?
1: The one thing I really wish society would talk more about is what actually is success for us as a society? And I think every time that we make a plan, be that a business plan, a strategic plan, every time we you know, make a budget, whatever it is, we have implicit assumptions built into what that is. And in my view, you know, our current definitions of success are killing us. And I don't just mean at individual levels because through my work, you know, we, we have very good data which shows that mental health is at epidemic levels right now, not least of all anxiety because of COVID-19. But be, before that, you know, things like depression being the greatest global burden of disease. You know, so how can we class ourselves as successful if that's what's actually happening? So that's what I really want to chat about. Partially, it's, it's just being conscious of our mental models because we, we step in, I think, there's that beautiful saying that we are either conscious servants or unconscious slaves. And so you know, clearly things like mindfulness come into this, but it's also about how we articulate and define success. And that means for every institution. It means for every community, uh, be that a school, a business, charity, a government, a country, and frankly, like a planetary species, which we are right now as a global pandemic has quite acutely reminded us of. That's what I'm jamming on at the moment.
0: I love it. And I think the interesting thing for me when you and I have always spoken about this is you, you kind of frame it that our success is almost killing us. So describe to me what you mean by that.
1: First thing is, what is success, right? And so when we look around, we are just shown images or constructs of what success might be, you know, celebrity, wealth, growth. And yet, when we look kind of behind that, you know, a lot of these individuals or these models are not flourishing or thriving in any real sense. I mean, we could talk about all the different different domains, but just to take economics um, as one, and education as another. But economics, for example, like infinite growth, surely can't be our definition of success, as you know, the great Sir David Attenborough said you know anyone that thinks we can have infinite growth in a finite world is either a madman or an economist and to be fair to my economist friends out there who many of whom are lovely you know it means market-based economics but the idea is like what what is our shared destination like how are we conceiving of this this is why movements like the b corp movement benefit corporations you know triple bottom line the idea of social and economic impact alongside profitability i think are crucial movements at this point in time because we cannot continue as normal you know in this whole rush back to normal like post pandemic it's actually like which parts of normal do we not want to rush back to which parts didn't serve us anymore which parts can we be courageous enough to let go of so we can allow something better to emerge, a renewed definition of success, not a success that kills us by taking us to some type of ecological precipice over which we collapse, right? Be that biodiversity loss, be that climate change, and even at the individual level, be those that the mental health crises that we see particularly right now that are amplified because of social disconnection. And, you know, one thing I've been saying a lot is and reflecting on is even the really clever epidemiologist who came up with you know social distancing great but we should have said physical distancing from the outset and we should have talked about social connectedness we want to be physically distant but socially more connected than ever before because the benefits the physiological benefits that we used to get from a hug we can no longer do you know like i don't know the last time you tried to shake someone's hand it's just a really awkward squirming kind of you know (laughs) engagement hours these were just like protocols upon which human connection has been apart for hundreds of years, if not longer. So so that's what I mean. And that's why I'm interested in how do we be courageous enough as business leaders, as educators in our education systems, as people working in in the not-for-profit sector, in any space, really. How can we create a renewed definition of ex- of success, one that we can reimagine? And then, of course, it's about doing the work to bring that about, to make allow that to manifest, I think, in the world.
0: So if you think about those elements and, you know, there's so much in that, Luca, that I loved and, you know, from the quotes, but also how you really articulate our questioning around our definition of success. So you said, you know, we need to change a few things. Where do people start? How do we start on this journey to redefine what success looks like for us and our societies and our communities and our workforces? Where do you suggest people begin?
1: I don't want to sound too philosophical, but probably with ourselves, to be honest, you know, what does success mean to us? I feel like this in my own life, you know, and of course I can talk from my uniquely subjective experience on this as an expert in my own subjective experience. What does success mean to me? You know, what contribution do I want to make? You know, like if I, if I think about my life and, you know, to be honest, you know, I'm fairly philosophical and individual, I would say, but, you know, at the end of my life, what do I want someone to stand up and say about me at my funeral? Like that's, in in all honesty, that's practically how I define success in my own life. And so I have my eulogy kind of pre-written, which for some people freaks them out. But I think, and I know that some of your previous guests have talked quite explicitly about this, you know, we should talk more about death because assuming that we're going to live forever, even though we have some futurists trying to do that to upload our consciousness to the cloud, you know, and Elon Musk brought out, you know, Neuralink last week and all this kind of stuff. You know, that's all well and good. But I think what that does is it, it helps us to realign with the life we truly want to lead. Because we're hackable, we're hackable beings, as, you know, the great Yuval Noah Harari says quite well, we're easily hackable. And yet we think we're always acting with free will. Often we're just programmed. Be that through the dopamine loops that are created by design, by some very smart people, you know, out of Silicon Valley and other places in the world, right? You know, the idea that every time we get a notification, we feel seen or valued or heard. So, you know, and the more time we spend on screen, effectively, the more value there is to that particular company and organization. You know, some people call it surveillance capitalism or extraction capitalism, right?
0: What do you mean by that? Describe that to me a little bit further.
1: Well, so for example, you know, time management in my book is old hat, like we, sh- we shouldn't be talking about time management anymore. It matters because we all have the same, theoretically, amount of time unless we're traveling at the speed of light through space and then, you know, things get a bit crazy, right? So we won't, we won't put that in the example. But, you know, so what we should think about is our time, our energy and our attention. And we should think about those three concepts and how they overlap and interrupt because we can have all the time in the world. But if we are distracted consistently, there's no way we can be most powerful in, in creating a service, a product, contributing to a community, being an educator, being a leader, being a parent, like a mother or a father, whatever, a carer, whatever the case is, right? So I think a lot about attention management today. When I think about my own life, but in the work I also do, it's also like, how do we take control of our attention? And, you know, Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work and and other thinkers have, have really contributed well to this space because frankly, we have to fight against some of the most addictive things that have ever been created that we now carry around on our person. And that's not to say that technology, you know, I'm a techno optimist in many ways, you know, some of the tools that have been created are incredible saving lives, connecting people, but there's also a downside. And it comes down to success again, Michelle, like what's success for this company. It's usually like build out something powerful, get acquired or create a really amazing sustainable business model that generates huge financial value. So I'm a huge advocate for an expanded definition of success because our current definition is not getting us to where we should be. And clearly, I have I'm not neutral in this. I have a value position, which is where we should be heading is towards collective well-being or collective flourishing. I really do think, you know, we live in this kind of self-delusion that you and I are somehow separate. We're not. Our destinies are totally intertwined. Um, and Martin Luther King Jr., you know, had some beautiful reflections on this, when he talked about the social fabric of our world, our communities, our society. And so that's, I think, the piece. So where do we start? Well, we start with a, a new definition of who do I want to be? What do I want to do? And therefore, what do I need to know? And I'm an educator and I, I work in education a lot of the time, you know, was a school principal and teacher for a time. So if I think about a school example, it's saying, what is success to us? Who do we want to be as a school? and a school community, learning community, learning ecosystem. Great. What skills should we develop there for? And what knowledge matters most? And of course, in traditional schooling models, we start with the content first. What's the textbook say? Cool. What skills might young people develop? Cool. Can we create a project that actually does something in the community? In my view, it's just the wrong starting point. And, you know, there's wonderful examples of innovation happening all over the world, right? But in some ways, they are working in spite of rather than because of the liberation of systems. So, That's something I'm really interested in. So basically, what is the vision statement for your organization, for your life? That should be the starting point. And actually think really deeply about that.
0: If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. You know, I think you and I always sort of talk about the way we do things a bit differently and how, you know, through sort of lockdown and COVID and how we've kind of adapted and morphed different things that we do and changed our, you know, living environments and our working environments. And I'd love you to sort of share with me around the changes that you brought in, you know, consciously when sort of COVID hit and how that affected you, because I think it's a really good example of how you, you know, we're all dealing with this, everyone's dealing with it differently, but how you reframe stuff, which was a beautiful you know example that people could potentially take away and apply to themselves
1: i'm fascinated by this framing piece michelle and in, in terms of what i'm currently learning right now that cognitive linguistic space and i have an applied linguistics background as well as an education background an entrepreneurial background
0: yeah don't you speak like five languages you know like <laughs> amazing
1: constant arrival you know you never arrive at and this is the kind of point and this is like an alan watts sentiment it's like we're always obsessed with making it making it where you get to that part, there's always something else. You know, I got <laughs> super point. into like yeah. running endurance races. And so, you know, I did a five K, then a ten, and then a you do a half marathon, then you do a marathon, then you do a trail marathon. Then there's always like an ultra trail. And then there's like a seven day thing. And then there's like a month and then you could run, a, you know, like it never ends. And so the point is like, how do we focus on that journey?
0: But how beautiful is that though? I think yeah, cause people think, see that and think, oh, it kind of gives them anxiety on the negative or why do it? Because I'm never going to be the best or it's never going to end. Whereas I see that as an awesome opportunity in life. And I'm always growing, learning, you know, it's just like I'm a sponge. I've always been that way equally it's where you and i get on so well but i uh, you know how do we kind of use that to our advantage especially in a time that's really challenging for people and what are the kind of little things that we can embrace or you know maybe some people aren't as brave it's not the word but they're not uh, as willing to dive into you know massive like well, we cope with change very well i imagine not everyone's like that so what are, uh, I think you sort of talked about, you know, you reframed around the days of the week, which I loved. I thought that was really cool.
1: Well, I mean, the, the first thing that happened, and you write about this in your book, of course, Michelle, is like, I went through the stages of grief, like everybody else in the world, the Kubler-Ross model of, you know, oh denial, this will be fine. And then I was angry and then I was, you know, depressed and then I was questioning and then I came to acceptance or so whatever the five are. I've, I'm sure I've, you know, murdered those. But the point is I got to acceptance pretty quickly because I have been, I would say like really deliberately trying to build my capability to deal with uncertainty for a long period of time, right? And so in some ways it's, it's like it's agility and it's learning agility, right? Which for me as an educationalist, I think is one of the key aspects we need to focus on clearly. So it's not just like, it's not an individual's character or personality. It's also the development experiences they've been exposed to. And uh, I've been very lucky to be able to travel quite extensively, to turn up, to work cross-culturally, cross-linguistically, feel like the outsider, which is important as a white man in Australian society to feel like that for a period of time, you know, try to get, really understand those different experiences. But when this happened, I thought, well, you know, days of the week, kind of irrelevant when we're in like, you know, wave one, in Australia, at least.
0: I think everyone was confused, weren't they? Because they're like, hang on, it's Monday. Oh, wait, what? Is it the weekend? You could see it's around a, on memes. It's, it's like, I think funny. the joke
1: was, oh, happy Schmerz Day. You know, like no one knew, really. And it was novel in some ways, right? I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. You get to work from home. And I mean, the novelty is well and truly worn off now. And it's absolutely clearly, it's like a serious pandemic. But I just read the first, one of the tangible things I did was I just renamed every day. And so Monday became design day. It was all about me as a designer and putting on my design glasses. And I've been lucky to do some work at the Stanford D School, which is all about design thinking, human-centered design. So it was like, cool, like how am I going to design my life and design the organizations that I, I run or I support or I work with, whatever. And then two was doing day. I was like, great, now it's time to do all that stuff that I've just, you know, done the kind of meta level. Wednesday was Karanga Day and that's an international not-for-profit that I, um, I co-lead with some wonderful colleagues from around the world around social emotional learning. Thursday became kind of a projects day where I worked on, you know, a a great not-for-profit called Learning Creates Australia, which are doing some really, really interesting ecosystem support work as a convening organization here in Australia. And Friday was grounding. And grounding was like no tech, no emails, not uh, contactable. That was like, that was the concept behind it anyway. And then Saturday was kind of like get out of the house day if we were permitted to, like, you know, go to the beach, go for a run. And then Sunday was family day. And because I've pretty well been away from my home, which here is on Ghana country in South Australia, in Adelaide, for 10 years, it was, okay, well, maybe I should like spend some time with my siblings and my my family. So I've been kind of delving into my Greek heritage and trying to cook up feasts every Sunday, some of which I must add have been delightful.
0: I love the framing of that and it's just such a beautiful way to look at something that we've all deal with and think of it a bit differently which is what you do so well so I'm curious as to which day became your favorite.
1: Grounding day was kind of very like really important for well-being because of course what I was trying to do and I don't suffer from boredom I suffer from enthusiasm so I say yes to everything and then stretch myself oh, so I far. Love and that. Sure-
0: I've never worked that out that's me. I
1: love well, <laughs> it's a default to yes, right? Which is wonderful because yeah, you constantly have possibilities, but you, you've got to be careful you burn yourself out. And I've done that twice, I would say, across my kind of professional career journey. Once after being a school principal and once after being a consultant for a, a, train, a teacher training company. Uh, you know what's funny? Like we've talked a bit about this before as well, Michelle. Like Alain de Botton, who's one of my favorite authors, right? He's a philosopher, contemporary philosopher. And he talks about this, you know, the Sunday night anxiety, I've got to go work tomorrow and it kind of like just hits you like, oh, the, the dread. That's a great word like this. And so the question is like, how have we designed our society to be? That's how we feel on a Sunday. And so Monday became my favorite day because what I tried to do was not be reactionary. I wanted to be revolutionary, to use that old saying from a former colleague of mine, Alan, Aaron Tate. So how do we be revolutionary? You know, how do we do the meta level? Like, what are we actually trying to do? What is success for us? Literally spend half a day thinking about that building out some interesting models, some ideas, some projects. And then, of course, spending the rest of the week overwhelmed trying to bring them out, <laughs> trying to create them.
0: you come up with five new ideas every week. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly.
1: There's a, a philosopher called Kierkegaard, right? He was quite a dark philosopher. But he talks about how we all suffer regardless. You know, the rich suffer because of their riches. The poor suffer because of their poverty. Those that marry suffer because of their marriage. Those that don't marry suffer because they are not married. So there's this idea that for all of us, we have these different challenges and struggles. My struggle will always be just trying to manage my curiosity and not allowing it to get too far ahead of what's actually capable. Um, But I am a really proficient learner. It is what I love to do best. It's why I feel so at home in education and in spaces where we're talking about human dynamics and psychology and the intersection of language, leadership, learning, all that stuff. I'm really excited about it. So, so Mondays for me became my kind of favorite day because I could do a Sunday review, which is something I do. Like I bought a fountain pen for the first time in my life, by the way, in COVID. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to write with a fountain pen. And I've been absolutely delighting in the experience of doing that. Something just Isn't super simple and grounding. It's yeah. so nice.
0: I think it's that, that simplicity, the amount of people that are getting back to that. It's almost the tactility and the slowness and that the consciousness of you know the flow of writing. It's probably the same sort of thing I'm doing with my pottery. I'm just loving the tactility of the ceramics and the slowness that it takes, and every part of the artist kind of way is teaching me stuff you know whether it's patience or or um, non-attachment because my shit breaks all the time or you know whatever but um, you bring all that together in your business the learning future and you have just launched your own podcast as well which I've been starting to listen to which is fabulous because you're such a good interviewer so it's been fun to have you yeah, on the other side, what kind of work do you do through all that, and that? that how do you help people, you know, in the education sector and and also uh, broader? Because you know, the the work that you do is pretty big.
1: I don't know if I'd put it that way. I'd just say I suffer from curiosity. It's probably you know for my sins. Like, I, it's my signature strength, by the way. My character strength is curiosity, and so that's why I love working in education and and particularly supporting schools and systems. Uh, And of course, the question that I think we always need to start with is, what's the shared destination we want to get to together? Is that the right articulation of what we think success is? And I think partially as much as we focus on problem solving and like you can run a great problem solving process that's high energy in ideation and prototyping and testing and all these cool concepts. I think the biggest part of this is how do we stay with the problems longer to truly understand what might be needed? And I think all of us rush, including myself, to great, here's the solution. Or, let's use Lean Startup and let's launch this thing. And just, you know, I really think when it comes to some of the truly wicked problems, and I use that term in terms of complex problems in that sense, right, as opposed to simple ones, simple ones we can solve with tactics. We know what works. But when we don't know what works, that's where we need strategy. And it's where we need to, I think, go through a really deep human process where we don't just position humans at the center, like human-centered design, of which I'm an enormous fan. We position humanity. And I think that's an evolution, right? Because it takes us out of the individualistic paradigm Mm. and the pathology that comes from individualism, which is mass loneliness. You know, I'm I'm listening to this book at the moment by Tom Collins, I think it is, The Self-Delusion. You know, 32,000 people die alone in Japan every single year, and and they have a word for it in Japanese – and alone in that word means having not left the house for six months and having no companion.
0: 32,000 people die like that, I haven't seen someone for six months. That is depressing.
1: Uh, it's it's super depressing. And so the question is like, what are we doing about that? How are we redesigning our structures? So, you know, that's the societal piece. But when it comes down to a school, like school leaders and educators, in fact, the whole Kind of stakeholder group, the whole ecosystem itself, the local ecosystem, are making determinations about what matters most. And I really think we need to see well being and learning totally integrated in a way where success is not the score that you get, the grades that you get. It is how well you feel, how much you know yourself, how equipped are you to contribute to society. And importantly, and you were talking about this point, how much can you adapt? how adaptable are you because of course our lives from this point forth will be constant learning whether we like it or not so we better find something we like because if we don't it's going to be those that sunday night experience for quite a few decades to come that's kind of what i explore a lot so you know be that working alongside schools to try to look at the way that they you know basically what's the strategy what are the practices how is teaching and learning actually happening we talk about pedagogy for example in in education like what's the what's the way that teaching is taking place and how do we amplify not just the voices of young people but actually their agency it's not cool let's have a let's create a student voice panel no no how do we co-design with young people around their own destiny and again some really great work in the social services sector which is Co-design is one of the most powerful methodologies we have because you bring the beneficiaries in—not even the beneficiaries, the partners—in from the beginning, and you can create really powerful and sustained change by using those types of those types of methods.
0: Amazing the way you describe that and the work that you do, and you're so so uh, flippant about it, but it uh, is very impactful. I know it for sure, and I think you said something earlier around you know gifting our agency to others. I think is a really good point. So we're you're recommending for people to start with yourself, you know, first and foremost. I think the other kind of key elements you're saying there around, if you don't like, you know, the Sunday dread, you know, shift it up and change it. And you gave some beautiful examples I've talked before about me changing my Mondays because I always hated Mondays. It's fine for us, I guess, that work for ourselves and have that flexibility. There's a whole other podcast that we could talk about, about getting to that stage and how, you know, owning, our own lives and our own decisions and our own sort of destiny, I guess, a bit. But if we step back a bit, for anyone listening that is working for others, what are a couple of like small little changes that you think they could make to actually get them on the way with this?
1: We could totally do a whole other podcast on that.
0: But Here's
1: something I've been thinking about, Michelle, to answer this question. You know, a lot of people say, do what you love. And if I've learned anything in in working alongside communities, and some of whom have many barriers, you know, I worked in remote indigenous australia for a time you know and i just think about myself as a as a school principal as a middle school teacher just saying to one of my students you t- just do what you love follow your passion i mean and how much that have smacked of privilege i mean so the point is that ultimately we need to change the systems and the structures black lives matter is all about breaking down dissolving racist structures right globally but of course it's been kicked off in the united states and they're dealing with it there daily as we can see right so there's the whole like do what you love but then there's also love what you do which is actually is about your mindset and so there's that that old the old story that you might know you know you walk past someone you say oh what are you what are you doing there and he's like i'm chiseling a stone can't you see and i oh okay sorry buddy and you walk past the next person you say well what are you doing and they say i'm building a cathedral they're doing exactly the same task but it's the orientation towards the purpose or the meaningful nature of that task That actually really contributes to our sense of happiness and so how might we design a society where everyone can experience meaning in work one of the good things about converging exponential technologies roboticization ai basically you know the removal of of routine work in both manual and cognitive spaces is that if we design this properly we might be able to increase meaningful work and decrease work that has little meaning in my view, right. The big question is: Will we design it well? How might we design our education system so that it enables young people to flourish? You know, to have a sense to build out their sense of creativity and to f- not just find their passion, which is problematic because how do we find it?
0: Where is it? And how do you know if you haven't experienced life yet as well, right? That's the thing. You've got to play and get out there and try stuff.
1: Exactly right.
0: So, so how do we
1: think of our life as an experiment? Is something I think about, and how do we think of it? Every day is a micro experiment. How do we become playful with all the different moments? And you can do that in lots of different places. And I've worked in hospitality for seven years, which was great. And then I worked in school systems for six. And then I've kind of worked as a consultant for four. And now as an entrepreneur, I would say for two. Social entrepreneur, perhaps. So the idea of being able to shift and change is great. But we just don't know what we don't know. And so exposure and contact to different ideas, different peoples, different cultures, different languages. You know, this is a big part of the life I try to lead. But it's also, I think, a big part of the type of society we should try to create, the type of learning experiences that we should create. Be that at work, by the way, where if your are workplace and you're in, you're in a company, if you don't think of yourselves as a learning organization already, you are way behind because it is the capacity of the human beings in your team to be able to evolve and expand that's going to be your biggest advantage. So that's that's the whole thing here, right? In an accelerating world, how do we stay nimble, agile? How do we stay interested? And how do we think of things as an experiment?
0: I love that. It's been fabulous, as always, to talk to you. And I uh, do feel that we're going to have to have a part two on this because there are so many things that I want to dig deeper on with you. But uh, we will do that down the track. It's been divine.
1: Michelle, thank you so much.
0: Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, Hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.